In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. If the devil ran a church, how do you think he'd run it? I agree with C.S. Lewis that he would run it as a bureaucracy. This tedious, uh, this tedious and exacting system, which is meant to limit people's freedom, this whole hierarchy and these rules and these limitations, that's how the devil would want to run the people of God. Uh, C.S. Lewis proposes this concept in the Screwtape Letters when he structures the demons and their whole hierarchical system and the way they communicate to trip Christians up and people and send them to hell. Like this whole fantastic story, a fantastic call as well, um, of demons corresponding with each other. Uh, he actually, he wrote a preface to the 1961 edition, in which he, it's not in my version, so I'm, I'm trusting my source on this, <laughs> um, in which he writes in that preface this. Um, he says, We must picture hell as a state where everyone is perpetually concerned about his own dignity and advancement, where everyone has a grievance, and where Everyone lives the deadly, serious passions of envy, self-importance, and resentment. Bureaucracies kill with their limitations and their exactations that they want from us. Exacting and tedious. Bureaucracy would kill. So if, if the devil ran a church, I'm not sure you'd say there's no God and just make everyone leave. I think you just want to make all the Christians a bunch of rats doing what he says to do, being super hyper-religious and super uh, busy and tedious with his demands. Make them have to meet his expectations of godliness so that they become what Jesus warns us against becoming in this passage. What does Jesus warn us against? Well, Verses 1 and 2 are his main point. This is how, this is how Jesus structures this section. Remember, this is the, this, chapter 7 is the end. This, actually, what we're doing tonight, it's the end of his main body, the main argument of his Sermon on the Mount. Next week will be the conclusion. It will be the call to action. Um, but this is the ending of his main point, which he started back in 5 verse 17. Verses 1 and 2 make his last and final point. Do not judge. Then he gives us some examples about how we treat others in verses three through six. That's where we have, <clears throat> that's where we have the log and the speck in different people's eyes and the humorous. And it's meant to be humorous. I can imagine the people laughed when he gave the example of someone with a log in their eye saying, let me take the speck out of your eye, Chase. It's, you need some help there, brother. Um, and then Jesus is like, just take your own log out first and maybe you can actually see. Um, and then, and then he supports us. Do not judge with the next portion in verses seven through eleven. Um, so, verses three through six said how we treat others, but seven through eleven is now how we entreat God. How do we entreat God? Because how we entreat God is going to determine how we treat others. So, there's not a lot of seemingly connection on the surface when we read through it, but Jesus is giving us this outline of how do we not become judgers. And then the conclusion is verse 12, as who knows what it's usually called, the golden, the golden rule. Yeah, so verse 12 is the golden rule. It's his conclusion not only to do not judge, but it's his conclusion to the sermon's main point that started back at verse 17 of chapter 5. 
Therefore, I say to you, what does he say again? Um, uh, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So the law and the prophets are being elevated. And then he says in verse 20, unless your righteousness is greater than the scribes and Pharisees, you ain't making it to the kingdom of heaven. And that alarms everyone. And we've been going through this patiently to clarify what Jesus is saying. He's now bringing it to a close. Notice he refers back to the law and the prophets in verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So we've concluded his main argument about how the law is being fulfilled in the church by a righteousness that is internal and external, not just external, though. The devil, however, would love to run a church where everything's external and it's a it's just a dog eat dog competition for who can fast better than the other and who can have a longer prayer rule than the other and who can come to church more frequently than the other and all kinds of things that we're going to have to be in competition with one another on that's a bureaucratic church it's all about this tedious exacting uh, uh rules in which we become more limited than we become liberated and i fear that the devil's doing a good job at running a lot of churches and if we're not careful tonight if we don't heed jesus's warning here we're gonna be that hypocrite that jesus says and we're gonna be telling everyone with a little speck of dust how to get that out while we're using our log to hit them in the face let me get that for you. And we can't get to them. Just, boom, boom. Some people's logs are bigger than others. I know. I'm just kidding. Uh, I mean, I have a pretty big log if I think that's true of you. Okay, so this is Jesus' warning. He's warning us against this tedious, exacting, limiting bureaucracy that the devil wants to rule Christians with. So let's go into verses 1 through 6. Um, when tedious and exacting rules govern us, we become critical we become critical because we're super critical on ourselves so we're super critical on others we want everybody else to do what we're doing so we become those we want others to adhere to the same rules that we adhere to so be careful brothers and sisters because yeah we urge fasting at this church and we urge having a robust prayer life um but what can happen is you find so much fruit and growth in these practices, which Jesus told us to do when you fast, when you pray, when you give. We can find so much fruit in these that we then become exacting and demanding on those around us about the same thing that we're doing. And it's initially, it's it's out of a good motive. I want to see Tyler thrive because he's hypothetically struggling um so i really i need to see tyler praying the way i pray then he will be fixed and cured and and i observe him like dude no you should not be doing it like that you need to do it like this well now we've gone well beyond what jesus told us to do he told us to pray and he told us to pray the lord's prayer he did not demand more um specifically more than that so should I demand that Tyler prays? Yeah, if Tyler's not praying, I need to urge Tyler to pray. But I don't need Tyler to pray the way I pray. And as soon as it's our agenda to get other people to walk with Jesus the way we walk with Jesus, we are becoming bureaucratic office managers of 
the church. And that's going to lead us to, so this making others adhere to our standards is going to lead us to judging others. Because now those who don't rise to my standard are less than me. Now I'm proud and now I've got this big old log in my eye and I'm, I'm noticing that Tyler doesn't pray through the Psalms the way I do. So, and I keep looking at him and beating him up with my log. So verses one and two are some of the most misunderstood verses in all of the Bible. Christians like to quote many passages. We love to quote this one to other Christians. This is possibly also the best used verse by worldlings toward Christians. Judge not that you be not judged. Today, when we use the word judge, we usually mean don't condemn me, bro. That's what we mean by judge. When we say uh, don't judge me, we mean don't condemn my actions. And so when we read Jesus say, do not judge that you be not judged, we suddenly take on this posture of we can't call each other out. I'm going to tell you right now, that's not what Jesus is saying. Notice verse six. What does he tell us to do there? Do not give to dogs. He's not talking about literal dogs. The dogs are the unholy versus the holy. The swine are the unholy, the unclean in Jewish um, dietary customs. Do not give your pearls something valuable. He's actually telling us to make distinctions about people. Do not give these people these things. That would require me to make a judgment about them, right? If you skip forward to next week's text in verse 15, he tells us to beware of prophets who come in sheep's clothing He's actually asking us to judge some church leaders or teachers. Make an assessment about them. You need to know if these guys are valid or not. So when Jesus says judge not, the way the world likes to use this verse against us is not at all what Jesus is saying. What we forget is that the word judge never meant condemn only. Condemn was one half of the meaning of the word judge. A judge also rewards. So when Jesus says to judge not, he means this is um, Jonathan Pennington makes this really clear. And I think it was really helpful. He translates this as do not judge unfairly. Do not judge unfairly. So I am to judge. I'm to make it's I grow in Christ and we're supposed to rule and reign with him in the new heavens and new earth. We're supposed to be good judges at some point because Paul also says we're going to judge angels in 1 Corinthians 6. If we're going to have any status in the kingdom of heaven, we have to know how to judge. But we have to know how to judge like God does and to judge fairly. We never take the place of God and say, Tyler is condemned. That is not my place to ever say. We're not to judge unfairly. Why? Verse 2 tells us. For if you judge unfairly, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. Do you want God to judge you unfairly? 
so here again, Jesus is giving us a, look, if you're going to live life this way, you're going to reap fruit a certain way. Um, like we looked at last week, if you don't forgive others, you're going to be in bondage in that unforgiveness. Um, but if you do, then you will find freedom from sin. Um, it's the same idea here. If you want to judge unfairly and be harshly critical toward people, then okay, you're going to get that back. If not in this life from those around us, then he, I, I'm, I'm, I think he's implying that also in the great judgment. I mean, look, you thought Tyler wasn't holy, then God's like, I mean, he was actually more sincere in his shorter prayers than you are in your longer prayers. Boom. God's going to judge. And he's like, it's only fair, Brandon, that you saw him that way. You wanted, you wanted me to assess you that way. So that's what Jesus is saying, is don't judge unfairly. So to judge is to make a discernment, is to make a decision. So you and I go through life, and we must be good judges. We must make good decisions, and we must make fair discernments about the people in our lives. Church leaders should be fair in their discernment about people who are trying to rip off some of their flock. Um, we should, as people in the church, should be really fair in our discernment about those who are leading the church in terrible or misleading ways. Judgment is a gift given to us, but we need to use it well because it's a powerful gift. So um, it's about learning to discern or decide um, what this requires. How do we become good judges? It, be, it requires humility. You cannot be a good discerner if you don't have humility. That's what verses 3 through 5 tell us. So why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? This is a person who's not self-aware. This is a person who does not know their errors and does not recognize that they are sinners. So what they do is they go around assessing other people's sins or shortcomings. This is not humility. We have to understand that Jesus is, as he's coming to the end of the sermon, he's reaching back to the beginning of the sermon with a lot of this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are not going to be... Um, trying to correct Randy's flaws because there's so much of my poverty of spirit that I have begun to simply mourn my sin constantly. And I've become a meek person through this process. Remember that? So humility is absolutely essential. This is what he's calling us to. He continues in verse four, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly take the speck out of your brother's eye. And if I know myself even half as well as I think I do, because I probably don't, because I'm, I'm, I'm still a proud human, I, if I take Jesus' words here to the full, there's going to be a long process of removing this sin in my own life. And I may never have time to worry about how, where others should be because I'm no longer comparing my growth with other people's growth. I'm comparing my growth 
with the person of Christ. And if my eyes are on Christ, I am infinitely dissatisfied with my likeness to him. I am forever at a gap. One that's closing really gradually in light of eternity, but one that I want to close faster and more. Um, I, what, where is there time? If my, if my vision is where it should be, where is there time for my taking care of your eyes? Put your eyes where they belong and we won't be worried about where other people's eyes are. But there will be a time. Verse 6 reminds us of this. There will be a time when it's so obvious you are in sin not to say something. You need, you need to get your act together here. Or this person should not be treated like a Christian. We should be treating them like someone to make a Christian. Or this person should not be leading a church. Like There are times when we need to exercise that. And that's what verse 6 gives permission for. So don't buy the world's lie that we have to like, just be accepting of everything and tolerant and the whole virtue of this culture of be nice. I mean, it's just a stupid, stupid thing that the world is. And, and, and we're, we're, we need to make sure that we don't just fall into that. We have virtues. We have the nature of God, which we're not only trying to, we, we want to live into that. And we don't want to weaken that around us. So verse 7 brings us some balance. By the way, Tyler, there will be some slides. So can you just go ahead to the next one? And just, there was a sermon title up there. Not that I ever do this, but there you go. That's the golden vision we're getting. Um, so verse 7. So we go from this bureaucratic critic. When you're living the bureaucratic satanic way of being exacting and limiting and tedious, like we got to do every little thing. Um, you become a critic, right? Because no one else is working as hard as I am around here. Um, we now move to the benevolent father. The benevolent father in verse 7. This is just an absolute critical section that Jesus says. So ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Now, it begins with this call for us to have an action. But I want you to notice as we go, the emphasis is not on the persistence of the seeker. The emphasis is not on the persistence of the seeker. The emphasis is going to be on the graciousness of the giver. So verse 8 continues. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And then there's this example, right, from lesser to greater like if if earthly fathers in verses 9 through 10 can give a half decent response to their children when they ask how much more would your heavenly father be able to give you what's good how much more so Jesus wants us to consider we have a really good father so that's verse 11 if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This call to our Heavenly Father reminds us of what he's been doing throughout this sermon. The vast majority of the phrases for God as Father are all concentrated in this sermon on the mount. 
And we saw a massive, do you remember where the massive concentration of father is used? Do you remember what, which passage is that in the sermon? The prayer. The Lord's Prayer, yeah. Yeah, there we have that massive concentration of father. Um, so he, he's bringing us back to what he's been saying. When we pray, we are, envel- we are wrapping our arms around our father whose arms have been waiting to wrap around us. It's this intertwining of our of our of us with him this this communion um and then we see it comes again very prevalently in what um both um sam and chase gave us a couple weeks ago a few weeks ago especially like in verse 25 to 34 when he tells us don't be anxious for your father knows right he knows he's going to provide for you um so it brings us back to that. And so what Jesus is reminding us here is that he knows how to take care of our resources. He knows how to take care of our relationships. So focus on the generosity of your father. Because here's here's where I think we realize the vast difference. If God is tedious, exacting, demanding, if he's, if he's this bureaucratic Lord, then we're going to relate to others the same way we relate to him. But if God is a good father who's generous and benevolent and pouring out his grace and blessings to those who come to him, then what he's asking us to do is keep our eyes on that father so that when we look at others, we see them as those in the same need we are before our father. And he meets these needs. He's generous and patient and loving so that we become the same to others. So that when I do see weaknesses or flaws or stumblings, I'm a partner with these people, not a critic of these people. So how we entreat our father determines how we will treat others. How we entreat him. Do you come to him timid? Do you come to him thinking he's not going to listen to me because I haven't been decent lately? Or do we come to him recognizing that he said, just come, seek, ask, knock. There I am giving myself. If we see him like that, then it's going to change our attitude and outlook on the world and on life. And we're going to be far less concerned with the speck in other people's eyes and far more concerned with removing the log out of our own. And when you do that, when we live that humble posture, people are going to find you helpful. We don't need more bullies. (laughs) We don't need more rivalries between each other. We don't need more competition. We need more unity. We need more humility that says we're all at the bottom and we're all calling to the same father who pours his love out evenly and equally to all. He doesn't limit what he gives. He doesn't limit who gets it like the devil would want us to think. He's not a bureaucratic system. He's a father, benevolent. He gives. So that leads us to verse 12. So whenever, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. So again, with this single line, he's summarizing what he said. 
What is greater righteousness, greater than the scribes and Pharisees? It's doing to others what we would have them do unto us. What is, you must be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Remember that, that's the word teleos. What is this, what is this teleos we're supposed to be living into? It is, so whatever you wish others to do to you, do also to them. What is the point of giving and of praying and of fasting? It's so that we can become creatures who can do unto others as we would have them do unto us. Why is Jesus calling us to trust him to provide for us in our needs? It's so that we can do unto others as we would have them do unto us. He's bringing it all to its sum, to its pinnacle, to that this is it. The law and the prophets are not abolished. They are fulfilled when the Christian loves others and does to them as he would have them do unto him. It's beautiful. Um, Paul also uh, says very similar things in Galatians 5 verse, uh, Romans 3, Romans 13 verse 8. Um, Romans 13 verse 8. No, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. It's fulfilled it just by loving one another. Galatians 5.14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus will reiterate this later as we had prayed earlier. He will reiterate, I think it's Matthew 22, chapter 22. He'll say, when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? He'll say, to love the Lord God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. On these two on all the law and the prophets. There's no commandment greater than these in, in some other places where he says it, he says it like that. This is it. It's loving God and loving others. And this is what he's been leading us to through the whole sermon. It's we're developing the Beatitudes because we love God. And the, these Beatitudes, we, we, they become what we be. They, we become these things so that we can be these to others and love others. Um, he told us how to... Um, how to love him through giving and praying and fasting. That whole center, remember that's the climax of the sermon, those three practices. And like, these are the ways we love God. He gave us these as expressions of growing closer to him and growing in his righteousness and uniting our nature with his nature. These are the ways we do this. We love him with all of what we are. And then it comes out to how do we handle the world and our stuff? And then how do we handle people, people who want to criticize or judge or people that we want to criticize or judge all of this is being summed up in loving god loving neighbor this is what the christian is called to this is greater than anything the law has ever called us to it did say those things but now because christ has come and and and, and is and is, is intertwining his nature with ours he's giving us this communion that we can now become not just copy or imitate or follow these rules but now that he's given us a vision because he's lived it and he's showing us what the human life can be like in and with him now he's calling us to grow into this thing it's so much different. Like a bureaucracy wants to just say, here's the handbook. You just got to do what the government's telling you to do. And then we're all happy. 
Like bureaucracies don't like creativity. They don't like outside the box thinking. They don't like having fun because <laughs> following the rule book is not very fun. <laughs> um, bureaucracies want you to keep rules. But a benevolent father wants to say, those are good. All those rules aren't wrong. But you will never grow up by simply following a rule book because you you will conform to the book. And a book is not a higher nature than you're called to be. You're called to conform to the one giving those rules, and that's going to grow you into a nature and a form higher than you are now. So in other words, a bureaucracy can only conform us to its standard. But our benevolent father, he can transform us into who he is. This is the higher calling he's giving us. So again, Jonathan Pennington, um, if any of you want more deep theological reading, he's the, con- he's the master on the Sermon on the Mount. He says here, and I fully agree with him, that we should stop calling this the golden rule and call it the golden vision. Because this isn't a rule. It doesn't tell you how to handle Lisa when she injures you. It doesn't give you those specifics. It's giving you a vision. It's giving you a guideline or a template, if you will. Say, how do you want others to treat you? Well, golly, now I have to grow up and use my mind. Now I have to practice empathy. I have to think about what humans feel and what humans are like. What do I like? This is what I should be like to others. The whole practice is growing us up. It's the golden vision. We are transformed by vision. We're transformed by imagination. We are not transformed by following the rule book. You're conformed by that. And that's good. But Jesus came to make us more than nice and good people. He came to make us sons of God. So he wants to call us with a vision. He wants to seize our imagination. He wants to transform us with the what? The renewing of our minds. This is one of the ways we do this. What do we meditate on? What are we always pondering? We should be pondering, what do I'm preaching to myself big time right now. What do I want others to do to me? This is what I should be doing to them. These should be the thoughts that occupy a person when they're with people. Not, what do I want people to think about me? How do I want them to see me? I want to be known as smart, so I'm going to say something smart here. I can't wait till he stops his long comment so I can interject with a good counterpoint. I cannot wait until people see my new outfit. Or I cannot wait till everyone... I'll make sure they know that I brought this potluck item. No one's done that. I, I don't think anyone. Maybe your heart was there, but I haven't heard you toot your horn at least. Um, like, and I'm just covering one of the passions, right? Self-esteem. That's all I'm covering there is what do people think of me? Like, where are our thoughts? The renewing of our mind, the transformation. It's to start thinking through the eyes of others, not through our log-clogged eyes. How do we, we're seeing our father as a benevolent bestower of goodness. And so we therefore want to start to see others through this lens. That's the golden vision. And this is what we must practice because it is not natural. 
it's not my born nature. It's going to become my second nature if I practice it over and over. It'll be start to become who I am. It's going to start to make me grow in God's likeness. That's possible. So this is what Jesus is calling us to. It's a higher way of living. We're transformed by our imagination. So um, Tyler's going to put a picture up there. This is by John Everett Malace. Um, some of you have seen this before. Um, that is um, one of these boys there. I don't remember which one. It's Sir, oh boy, I should have written this down. Uh, Sir somebody Raleigh, the great like English explorer. Walter, thank you. So Walter Raleigh, yeah. And so he, uh, this artist was depicting him, and and his fascinate his imagination is captured by this sailor who's telling the tales of sea. Right? Mm. He's pointing to this vast, immense ocean, and you could, I think, um, one of them. They actually both look very intrigued. One is like the one holding his knees um, is like on the like verge of like panic. Because it, what he's hearing described is so incredible. Like he wants it and he dreads it because he recognizes the immenseness of what's being described to him. Now, what you don't see happening is they are not being given a manual on what makes a good sailor or a good explorer. Um, they're not in a lecture about, you know, why you should consider becoming an explorer. Those things are, remember, none of these things are bad, but there's a higher and better growth, right? What the sailor is doing is he's telling them stories and he's pointing to the sea itself. This is what you want. That's what you want. Um, so to give credit, it's James K.A. Smith who who has showed me this picture. Um, and, and this is the power of imagination to see, okay, if I start to visualize my father as a good giver, this could actually radically transform how I treat others. How I entreat him may affect how I treat others. And it's not by being told how to speak when someone's rude or what are good etiquettes and manners. It's about so seeing him that I get lost in exploring him. I get lost in the immensity of his generosity, his benevolence, his goodness. I get lost in that ocean and now I become someone who is able to point others to the same thing. This, this is part what I think Jesus is doing by giving us a golden vision. Um, to uh, Smith then in his book, he, after uh, sharing this picture, he gives a quote by, um, I'm going to butcher this. I always say it perfectly in my head, but it's uh, quoting uh, Antoine de Saint-Puret. I think he wrote The Little Prince. Yeah. Um, he has this quote, which I think is brilliant, and it, it goes with this picture so well. You got the, okay, there it is. Okay, cool. You see it. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. I think this is what Jesus is doing when he tells us what you want others to do to you, do to them. And why he's been showing us through this sermon the goodness of our Father and why we should want to be drawn into this higher law, this higher way of being, this greater righteousness. He's showing us, not just telling us. Um, yeah, he's, he's shown us through the sermon. Um, 
So in summarizing the providence of our father, we see that providence at the end of chapter six with he clothes the lilies, he gives birds their food. So you should not be anxious. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. He shows us the providence of our father that way. Um, then in verses seven through 11, ask, seek, knock, and it will be given. He's a good father. If you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more can he do this for us? So in light of this vision he's given us, Jesus is saying, let's go. I don't rule my church with a bureaucracy. That's what the devil wants us to be under. He rules us with a longing for the immensity of the Father's generous, benevolent love. He rules us with this invitation to step into, partake, and become that Father's very generous nature. It's an invitation. Do unto others as you'd have them do to you. This is an invitation to become like Jesus, to step into his nature, partake in it, and grow in it. So I think Jesus wants us to answer this question. He's pointing, are we coming? Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. For you are good and you love mankind.